Today, 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 today. All right, today we're going to be talking about this idea of mourning. And don't, don't get worried. It's not going to be some depressing thing. Uh, what's that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we'll get that in a minute. It's part of it. Uh, we're going to talk about mourning. We're going to talk about death. We're going to talk about the shortness of life. But we're going to do it in a way that I think is hopeful. Uh, I think in America, man, we live in a world, we live in a culture, we live in an environment that we constantly, like our, our whole entire culture, Hollywood, the magazines, like the stores, the consumerism, it's all built around us avoiding the fact that we're getting older, that one day we're going to die, that bad things happen. What do we do when bad things happen? We try to distract, right? I mean, I'm guilty of it. We, we try everything we can, in, especially in American culture, Western culture, to avoid pain, avoid heartache, avoid difficult conversations. Anybody hate those? I don't know. I'm not the only one. You ever just, you know you got to have that real difficult situation? If you have a problem and struggle with that, talk to Sarah. She's wonderful at it. She knows how to, how to have the most awkward conversations with people. She did it for a living as a social worker. Uh, so, yeah, if you got to have an awkward conversation with somebody that's difficult, she'll help you out with that. But, yeah, man, we do everything we can to avoid, to avoid that stuff, to avoid uh, grieving, mourning, death. You know what I mean? We do things to distract us. And I think, uh, believe it or not, I think it's killing us when we don't fully walk through that stuff. I think the reason some of us, and myself included, why we get stuck in life is there's things that have happened, there's things that we've done, things that we've experienced, and we've never allowed ourselves to feel the true weight of that thing, and we've never truly walked through it. And so there's all these spikes that come out later in our life. Come on. I know I ain't the only one. There's spikes that come out later in life, relationships that are affected later in life, and we can't understand why, but it's because there's all this stuff buried underneath the surface. You know, we like to keep difficult things out of sight, out of mind. Let's think about these homeless people. Where are they living at? They're not living on Main Street, right? They're not in front of all the nice new shops. They're hidden behind the building. And they gotta move. They're gonna be forcefully moved by the authorities. And so, cities do that all over. And I'm not just saying Hamilton, but they, out of sight, out of mind. You know, we do the prison work. We go to prisons. We've been to prisons, uh, just about almost every single prison in the state of Ohio. The penitentiaries are always in the middle of cornfields. I don't know if you've ever been in one of these places. It's very bizarre. You're driving, everything's nice. There's cows, dogs barking, you know what I mean? Eagles flying and bam, there's a huge penitentiary, you know what I mean? Guard towers with rifles, like they're always in the middle of nowhere because why? They're not gonna put those in a subdivision. They don't want people to think about that. They don't want people to see that. And I'll, I'll be the first one to say, I don't wanna look out my door and see a penitentiary. I'm okay with that. But at the same time, there's a certain cognitive dissonance with that, that hey, if we don't see those things, right? If we don't see those homeless people, if they're kind of out of sight, out of mind, we don't really think about it. Does that make sense? And this can often be true uh, in religious environments, right? I think some of the most uh, difficult places, not all the time, but some of the time, some of the most difficult places to talk about hard things, work through hard things, are often in churches. Because you feel this pressure. Maybe I'm the only one. It could just be me, just shot in the dark. But you feel this, maybe, maybe you've had this inner dialogue in your mind that, hey, uh, Everybody else seems to be doing okay, but man, it doesn't seem like it. Maybe I'm the only one struggling with this, you know? It seems like everybody else has it together, you know what I mean? If they only knew, like, the real me, they only knew what I was really dealing with, then maybe they might not accept me. Has anybody gone through this inner dialogue? And oftentimes when you go through a hard time, trauma, loss, pain, struggle, depression in a religious environment, what's the first thing you hear? You hear religious cliches which I hate, I can't stand them. You ever go through something so hard, so horrible? And, and I'm talking to those of you that have been within a church environment for a while. 
Uh, you're going through a really hard time. You're really struggling. You just need somebody to listen. You need someone to cry with, cry with you, someone to sit with you. And you tell them about this horrible situation, awful situation. What do they say? Brother, all things work together for the good. Like, man, I will sucker punch you in the throat. You know what I mean? You ever, you ever, you ever have that? And, and I think oftentimes, like, in, in religious environments, and not just in religious environments, but often out in, the, in American culture, we have a very hard time uh, facing this stuff and working through this stuff. And it says in Romans chapter 12, uh, and if you, if you have your Bible, feel free to, to join me on this. Uh, it says in Romans chapter 12, verse 13 through 16, it says, Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn. This is a key verse. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud. Be willing to associate. Be willing to associate with people of low position. Don't be conceited. You know Jesus was never ashamed of a single person he came in contact with. To me, that is one of the most powerful things about who Jesus is, is that he refused to allow the religious, the social, uh, you know, the economic status of, of different people in his day and in his time, even his own religious title and position. He refused to allow that position and that separation to create distance between him and other people. Jesus was never, he was never ashamed of a single person he came in contact with. He was, he was known as a friend of sinners, right? Uh, so this idea of mourning with those who mourn. And so right there in the scripture we see it's, a, it's important that we mourn with those who mourn. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, it's one of the shortest verses in the Bible, Jesus wept. You know, <laughs> if you can't say you, you, you haven't memorized a Bible verse, you got one today. Hey, how many Bible verses you know? I know one. Jesus wept. Two words. But I think it's one of the most powerful verses in the Bible for this. And I'm going to read it. Uh, this is John chapter 11. Verses 32 to uh, 36, it says, When Mary had reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid them? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. And again, to give you some backdrop on the story, this was about this guy named Lazarus. He was a friend of Jesus. Mary was his brother. And they told Jesus like four days earlier, like this guy was sick, like he's getting to the point of dying. And, and so when Jesus finally gets there, the dude was already dead, right? And, and so she says to him, you could hear the desperation of what, what she says. And I don't know about you, but I've gone through this in my life. God, if you had been here, then this wouldn't have happened. God, if you were really there, then why did this happen? Why did I experience this? Man, if, sometimes it feels like you're not, you don't care. Sometimes it doesn't feel like you're not watching. Amen, somebody. I know I'm not the only one, right? There's these moments in life where we feel like, God, if you were really there. And so... As the story goes, Jesus walks in, he hears the story. Uh, if you read the rest of the story, Jesus raises this dude from the dead. But I find it very interesting and intriguing that even though Jesus knew he was gonna raise this guy from the dead, he still chose to stop and to feel this woman's pain and to weep. I think that's powerful. Even though he knew, hey, I'm, gonna, I'm about to raise this dude from the dead. I'm gonna sit with you, I'm gonna mourn with you, I'm gonna identify with your pain and struggle, and I'm gonna allow myself to feel what you feel. So as we go into this tent city, as we go into these penitentiaries, as we work with people coming off of drugs, like we don't want to just give them religious cliches and just 
throw verses at them like they're darts. Like we want to we want to allow ourselves to sit with them and feel what they feel and connect with where they're at because there's something powerful that happens. I think when we can sit with people, when we can mourn with people, when we can when we can walk with people through stuff like that's like there's resurrection right around the corner from that. But it's when we want we don't want to do that 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 things uh, don't seem to happen now. In Jesus' day, uh, it was very important if you if someone died, and again, we're, we're talking about much much more than just death here, but I want to get into this. In Jesus' day, and this is still true today in some cultures, like death and mourning was a very serious thing. They took it very serious. And so there was people in that time and in that day, their job, they were called professional mourners. And people would literally get paid. Think of this is kind of bizarre. It's kind of weird. It's kind of funny. It's kind of strange at the same time and sad. Uh, People were paid to go to a funeral, you know what I mean? Say your brother died, your cousin died. You know, you ever go to one of those funerals there's only a few people there? They weren't okay with that. And so they would pay these people called professional mourners. Now it's kind of it's kind of fake, it's a little disingenuous if you think about it. But they they valued each other's lives so much they thought everybody deserves a tear. Everybody deserves to be mourned. One of the most powerful things uh, I've ever experienced it was something my wife Sarah had done. Uh, she was leaving her job as a social worker, and there was this woman who had passed away. And oftentimes in these nursing homes, when people pass away, uh, their families are gone. Their loved ones are gone. And so they have these belongings that they had in their room. And if, if nobody comes to collect them, they literally have to throw, they have to throw it all away. And so the, the, entire, uh, the entire life's possessions of this woman, this, this woman was going to be thrown into a dumpster. And there was this incredible picture of her when she was in her 20s. Beautiful picture of this African-American woman. And Sarah's like, there's no way I could throw all this away. I got to take that picture. I, someone has to remember who that's. Uh, oh, man, that'll, that'll preach in itself. Like, that's what Jesus does to us. Like, when, he's, when, he, when everybody else wants to throw us away, when everybody else wants to forget our memory because of all the things that we may have done, the ways in which we feel like we fail, like Jesus comes back and says, no, man, this person has value. So in that day, they had these things called professional mourners, and they would come, and they would cry, and they would de deliver the eulogy. I mean, they would do all kinds of different uh, things. Even the poorest families uh, in Jesus' day, they would have at least one professional mourner because they believed that everybody, we talked about this last week, people who have died from drug addiction and heroin addiction, despite their destructive choices, everyone deserves to be mourned. Like the, the, everyone deserves to be humanized, no matter what the story was. Their life still mattered, and powerful, powerful stuff, man. Powerful stuff. And so Jesus uh, wept, man. He wept. And so what I want to do now is I want to talk about what are called the five stages of mourning in Jewish culture. Now, just follow me. I know some of this stuff may feel foreign. It may feel weird, different. Uh, but I, I guarantee you, if you follow uh, with me throughout this message, this is going to transform your life. And what I want to, the context I want to put this in, we're not just talk, talking about death. We're talking about when we go through something very difficult, right? So even if it's not somebody that we've lost, even though if there hasn't been a death, we're talking about loss. We're talking about uh, possibly death. We're talking about a tragic event. Maybe something happened to you. Maybe you did something, right? Something, so you've gone through something real, real heavy. So don't just view this in the, in the form of, of death, but view this in the form of going through some hard stuff. And I think, wouldn't you agree, we've all gone through some hard stuff, everybody? So there's five stages of mourning in Jewish culture. The first is a nunit. Can you say that with me? A nunit. I nunit. 
It's a funny word. So this is a pre-burial mourning. Uh, the second and third stage of mourning in Jewish culture is called the Shiva, and it's called sitting Shiva, basically, is what it is. And it's a seven-day period that follows the death of that person, right? So first you have a nunit that's pre-burial, so before they're buried. Uh, second and third step is seven, day, uh, seven days. And then fourth is shlazam. Can you say that? Shlazam. Shlazam. Uh, this is a 30-day mourning period. So you've got the pre-burial mourning, the first seven days, 30 days, and then finally the first year, right? And so it's kind of like a process. And they believe in that culture, even till this day, they still practice this, that when you lose somebody or you go through something horrible, unless you go through these stages, like you're not going to get out of it. You're going to stay stuck. Now, I don't know about you, but there's been things in my life where I've been stuck. And I had to retrace, like, why am I doing, like, this is not about that. Have you guys ever had these moments? Like, you were real agitated, stuff was bothering you, you felt stressed, and then you realized it wasn't the things that, that you thought were stressing you out that were the root of it. It was something much deeper going on, right? And so, with the Anunit, uh, Basically what happens is the people that mourn, the people that are in charge of coming around this person who's experienced loss, they call it the first, uh, the seven first degree relatives. So say you're the person that's lost the direct loved one or whoever, whoever it was that died. So say if it was a son, it's the first direct seven relatives that, uh, that run this whole thing. And so the son or daughter, brother, sister, father, mother, spouse, husband or wife, you get what I'm saying? There's like an inner circle of your immediate family. And then the other relatives, they form an outer circle. So there's an inner circle, there's that person that was lost, there's an inner circle, and then there's the outer circle. Now, I don't know about you, but I've gone through some stuff in my life when I was alone, right? I didn't have an inner circle. I didn't have an outer circle. Have you ever gone through a real difficult time and you felt alone? You didn't feel like you had the support. You didn't feel like you had the people around you. So Anunit, the first step of mourning in Jewish culture, this is the first most intense period of mourning. It's between the death and the burial. And this is characterized by numbing, paralyzing grief. Some of us have experienced this. And again, we're not just talking about death. This is about death, but let's think of it this much broader. This is where you experience a numbing, paralyzing grief. Some of us have gone through stuff, through stuff in life that has caused a numbing, paralyzing grief. During this period, the first degree relatives all consuming concern are the funeral and burial arrangements, right? To the extent that they are absolved by Torah law from the observant of all mitzvah requiring action, which is praying and all that stuff. So essentially what they're saying is, hey, the family at that time, they don't have any religious duties. Their, their religious duty is to help you out, to surround you, right? To surround you as you're going through that. And it is during this period that the kriya or the rending of the garment as a sign of grief is performed. Now this is incredible. I, I didn't have time. I really wanted to do this this morning. Like, I don't know if there's something just about being destructive as a guy. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. You, you like to break stuff when you're a kid, like light fires, you know what I mean? What they would do in Jewish culture, what they do still do to this day, they do what's called the Kriya. And this is like, this is like a, a religious exercise and they take an outer garment and they tear that garment. They rip it, right? And some of us know what that's like. Some of us know what it's like to go through something 
so hard and so difficult that you literally feel like this primal like pain and agony and, and, and grief where you can literally tear it. Anybody, can, can I get an amen? Has, have you ever gone through something that was so difficult, so hard, so heavy, like you literally just went, ah, you know what I mean? Rip your clothes off and just yell and scream, right? And so they believe this is the, like, this is part of the first step is, is it's just releasing this primal, uh, deep, uh, grief, right? And you can't just do it by crying. There has to be some visceral, physical action attached to it. According to the customs of some community, the Kriya is performed immediately following the death or upon receiving the news of the death. Think about some of you that have lost somebody when you got that news, right? You know what I'm talking about. You may not have done that, but you felt something on that level. During this process, it says, do not comfort the mourner during that time that his deceased still lies unburied before him. At this point, the grief is too intense for any effort and consolation. It is time to simply be with the mourner or offer practical assistance rather than words of consolation. This is a time of silence, not of words. I think oftentimes, especially in religious communities, when somebody's going through something hard and they're going through something difficult, what's the first thing we want to do? We want to tell them all about how Jesus is going to save them and Jesus is going to rescue them and, you know, it's going to be okay and God works everything out. It's good. And all that's true. It's, it's real. It's true. And I believe that. But they're saying, hey, when you first, when that person is first in the first stages of that, like they don't need that. What they need is they need somebody to come alongside of them and sit next to them, right? They need somebody to sit with them. They need somebody to just acknowledge the fact of what is going on. The act of tearing, destroying clothes is a visceral action full of rage and violence, physically expressing some of the many strong emotions one feels when one is bereaved. I also see it as making a symbolic break in personal identity. As a mourner, you are no longer the person you were. Isn't that true? Right, when you go through something traumatic, and again, not just death, maybe it's death for you, uh, when you go through something tra tragic, something hard, something very difficult, would you agree it changes you? It changes you. You're not the same person on the other side of that. Something has shifted. Something has ruptured in your life, and the experience of loss and grief can have a profound effect on our identities. And so your clothing, that which represents your old self, is destroyed. Grief can also be a lonely experience, isolating and alienating, and affects personal relationships and engagement with the world. Wouldn't you agree? When you're going through a hard time, it affects relationships, man. It can it can feel like it can feel isolating. And oftentimes people want it, they want to come come around you, they want to hang around you, but they feel, well, I don't know what to say, I don't know what to do. Let me tell you something. If you if you come across somebody this week, maybe you you already have somebody in your life, maybe you're that person going through a hard time. You know what that person needs? They don't need anything other than your presence. Just sitting with them, just sitting with them is a powerful, powerful thing. Yeah, they can isolate. Grief can isolate us. There's this incredible sculpture. I want to show this, man. This is this is some intense stuff. There's this incredible sculpture. This was made by the artist Susie McMurray, and this this dress is called the Widow. Now, again, you look at this thing, you're like, man, that's a beautiful dress. Look at that. You know, I can see Sarah and that just floating in here. <laughs> 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 uh, that's not your style. No, you know, not even for a ball. Okay, not your style. All right, but anyways. I'm just imagining Sarah floating. So it looks like a beautiful dress, even if that's not your thing, right? Looks like this incredible gown, you know, even if it's not from this era. And again, it looks beautiful. Everything looks great. This is called the widow. Beautiful. Look at the way it shimmers. But look at a close-up of this dress. 
It's made of needles. It's made of needles. Right? And, and I think the widow dress is a perfect way to describe some of us. And I'm talking to myself. Like from a distance, I look okay, hopefully. <laughs> I feel somewhat undisheveled this morning, right? Not every week, but today I feel okay. Got a new shirt. <laughs> but anyways, right, from a distance, we look okay. That person looks okay. Maybe the person you work with, maybe the person that you interact with in the store, the grocery store, whatever. Maybe somebody that you're related to. Maybe you're, you yourself, you look okay from a distance. But the closer you get to that person, the more you feel the pricks of what's going on, right? The closer we get, the more you can feel some of these things that are going on beneath the surface. And I, can I just be real for a moment? Can I just be honest? Because we're all about keeping it real at the fringe. Hey, the longer Sarah and I are married, she gets poked, amen? Not all the time, but the closer and closer I get to her, the more and more I open myself up, the more she's gotta wade through some of this stuff that I haven't dealt with, unresolved stuff from my past, unresolved stuff from my childhood that I haven't dealt with, right? From a distance, we can look okay, but if we don't allow ourselves to fully go through the grief and the mourning and the healing process, these needles can poke those people closest to us, right? We're working through it, right? Uh, I, I'll use this in another practical sense. My brother, some of you guys have heard my story. Uh, I was, a, I, was a, I was a crazy kid. I got in tons of trouble as a kid. I ended up at 16 uh, in juvenile prison for aggravated robbery and five counts of kidnapping. I'll tell you about that after if you want to hear all about it. I've got all kinds of stories, some good, some not so good. But I went to juvenile prison for four and a half years. And while I was in prison, my brother was murdered. And because of the location of my body, I was unable to fully mourn the process of what happened with my brother. My brother wasn't a criminal, he wasn't a drug dealer, he wasn't, he was the opposite of me. And so it was, it was a very shocking, uh, it was shocking news to get, it was a shocking thing to happen, it was very unexpected. And so because I was in juvenile prison, and, and this happened at the beginning of my time, I was unable to fully process and fully mourn. But I want to present to you that there's things that can happen to you in life. You can go through things, even as a free male or a free woman, that you cannot fully process and what will happen down the road is things will come out and you think they have something to do with something else but it's all about this way back here right and so in my own life like I had to come to terms with man I had never fully mourned my brother's death I had never fully like walked through that I remember when I got out of prison one of the first things I did I went to go visit his his grave and it was it was so hard for me to grab a hold of because I didn't get to go to the funeral. I didn't see him get buried. You know what I mean? So I really didn't have the closure. Not that you ever really, I don't buy that for a second, the closure. Uh, I mean, yeah, to some extent, but I didn't have any sense of finality because I didn't see him get lowered into the ground. So I remember when I got out, I went to his, his, uh, his uh, cemetery plot and I literally tried to dig him out of the ground because I wanted to see if it was him. Uh, not didn't go all the way down, but then, because I had not dealt with it. And I thought, man, yeah, I'm walking with Jesus. I'm, yeah, I've forgiven. No, no, my brother was murdered. You know what I mean? It's taken me 20 years to, to, to deal with some of this stuff. And so I want to encourage you, like if you remember anything I say, don't spend your whole life suppressing things. Don't spend your whole life not dealing with all these things way back there. Because I'm telling you, later in your life, they're going to poke people, they're going to jab people, and they're going to keep people at a distance. Right? And so I had to learn, man, i got to mourn my brother's death. Next step of Jewish mourning, the Shiva. 
The Shiva begins after burial and extends to the morning of the seventh day. The distinguished feature of the Shiva is that the mourners take an almost complete break from the routines and involvements of everyday life to focus exclusively on the memory of the departed and the manner in which they will honor him or her in their lives and receive consolation from their friends, family, and community. For seven days, they don't do anything. Isn't that the opposite of American culture? You know, some of us, we're so strapped and stressed financially. We go through something traumatic. What do we do? We're at work the next day. You know what I mean? Like, I remember when we had gone through, we, 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 had, a, we had a miscarriage, man. We lost a baby before Eliana. And that was a very difficult thing. And I remember, like, having to go back to work. And it just didn't, it didn't I mean, you remember? It didn't feel right. It didn't feel right. And so for seven days, man, they sit with that. They just sit. They don't do anything. They don't clean the house. <laughs> they don't vacuum. I'm teasing her because she's always vacuuming. Uh, you know, they, 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 don't, they don't do anything. They, they sit in, in that, right? And during, there's, there's a few practices that happen during Shiva. The first one is called the consolation meal. This is when mourners arrive home from the cemetery following the burial. They are given a special meal of condolence. Now, this meal, it's a very distinct meal. They don't just give you anything. They give you a bagel and they give you an egg, which I think is very bizarre. I, I enjoy bagels. I like eggs. Like bacon, egg, and cheese sandwich. You know, anybody like, like those? True West has a great one, little plug there. Give me lifetime free supplies for that one. But uh, yeah, they give you a bagel and an egg. And what this does is it symbolizes the cycle of life. And so they want to remind that person as they're, man, you got to eat something, but be reminded that life, there's a cycle to life, right? There's a cycle to life. And so this first part of Shiva, these people are served. The second part is called the house of mourning. And for the entire week of Shiva, the mourners remain in the house of mourning and their relatives, friends, and members of the community come to fulfill the mitzvah or the consult or consoling the mourner and participate in prayer. So they're not praying, but the community comes around them and offers the prayer, the support, the encouragement. Uh, and again, that person, they don't have to do anything. They don't have to participate. They're just there. These people just do it around. I think that's a powerful thing. I think that's a powerful thing. I think when somebody who has been, and I'm not trying to get silly here, but somebody uh, has been going to your church and you don't see them for a couple weeks, somebody needs to pick up a phone. Somebody needs to reach out. Somebody needs to say, hey, where's so-and-so? I haven't uh, heard from them in a while. And if I can't get a hold of you, somebody, and I'm not saying just me, somebody needs to get in their car and go see where the person's at. Right? That's the power of this is the community becomes present within their pain. They don't wait for them to come to the religious structure. They bring the religious structure to them. I think that's powerful. I think it's a powerful thing. Being present in their pain. The third thing they do while sitting Shiva is working and conducting business. One of the most fundamental laws of Jewish mourning, and this is over 3,000 years, that there is no doing business or work while you're sitting Shiva. So no, man, I don't, care, I don't care what the deadline is. I don't care what you're going through. Sometimes, like, we're going through something. It's okay to pull the plug and just stop, right? Now, I'm not telling you to quit your job, you know, because you're going through a difficult time. But I think there's something powerful to this. So they believe, no, you know, there's no distraction, there's no work. And oftentimes, and I'll say this as men, what is work for us sometimes as men? It's a distraction. It keeps our mind busy, right? We don't have to deal with it. We don't have to deal with it, right? Uh, the fourth thing they do is the consoling of the bereaved. And this is called making a Shiva called. And essentially what happens is they visit the house of the mourner and they talk about the life and deeds of the person being mourned. 
uh, participating in prayers and other activities done in merit of the departed, or simply being there for the mourner. I think this is really, really interesting, and I'll tell you why. What do they do? They come to the house, and they, they essentially say, hey, I want you to tell me about that person. You know, oftentimes when I, I tell the story of my brother, it's very, very rare that someone comes up to me and says, hey, man, and I'm not killing you guys. I don't feel like you got to come up to me afterwards. It's very rare that someone comes up to you and says, hey, what was he like? I know he was a murder victim, but like, what was he like? What kind of person was Larry? What kind of clothes did he wear? Did he have a sense of humor? What did he like to do for fun? Because for me, my brother is not just a story. He was a, he was a real part of my life. Those people that you have, those people that you're connected to, whatever that hard thing is that you're going through, maybe this morning, right? That's not just a story. That's real life, what you're going through. Tell me about it. And I'm not going to offer you any answers, but tell me about it. Tell me about that person. Talk through it, no matter how uncomfortable and how many times I get poked with these. I want to hear it. I want to hear about that person. Talking about and remembering what has been lost and being present. They are also encouraged to be supportive, to visit, to listen, but not to place a burden by expecting false joviality and plastic smiles from the bereaved. I love this. So as the religious community is going to that person's house that has lost the loved one, they don't. They tell them, don't expect, don't try to conjure up some fake smile out of that person. Just let them be where they're at. Like let them, if they're upset, like let them cry. They, there's no need. Uh, for them to put on a false smile or a nice face. So what they do is they encourage raw and real response. Again, in order for us to get through stuff in life, in order for us to get through trials and hard time, we got to be raw and honest and real and transparent. And the more we glaze over it, the more we minimize it, the more we apologize, right, for what we're going through, the less we get to work through it. There's also the daily minyan, and this is just when a prayer group comes. And they pray over you again. That person isn't expected to do anything. But again, they bring the church to them. They do a memorial candle where they light the candle. And this is symbolic that the presence of God is in the soul of man. And it's kept burning for the entire seven days. Again, just acknowledging uh, the image of God in this person. Eight, they cover their mirrors. This is a very interesting practice. They'll go through the whole house. They'll cover all the mirrors with, with sheets or covers. They'll cover up the pictures, right? And so it's a time-honored tradition to cover the mirrors and pictures in the house of mourning from the moment of death to the end of Shiva. So this is for the first seven days. They cover all the mirrors and all the pictures. And I, I was looking into this. I'm thinking, man, like, why did they do that? Why, why, would, you, why would you cover the mirror? When you're mourning the loss of somebody, and you know, you know what it, it told me. And maybe it's this. This is more of a reference to. I guess it could be true for men as well. What do women do when they cry? Where's my mirror? Is my mascara running? You know what I mean, ladies? Yeah. I think men do that too. Oh, oh man, oh, I'm tough, man. I can't let anybody see me cry. My eyes are watering. You know, my allergies are bothering me, right? And what, is, what does it do when they cover up the mirrors? There's no opportunity to save face, to clean yourself up in the mirror, and for pictures to take you back when you were there. You must, for this time, face the fact that they're gone. You must deal with and face the fact that we're gone 
through it. I pray to God, man, that the fringe can become a place where people can walk in this space no matter what they're going through, no matter what they're struggling with. There's no need to put on a safe face. There's no need to to hide the mascara that's running. There's no need for the guy who's like tattooed and has been through some stuff like that, that he's embarrassed to like talk about his struggle. Like, man, like that's a powerful thing. The other thing they do is they, they do what's called a specifically called sitting Shiva. They don't sit in a regular chair. They sit in a real low chair. So it's a chair really low to the ground. And well, why do they do this? I think one of the reasons they do this, when you sit lower than everybody else, you're acknowledging what you're going through and how that tragic struggle has brought you low to the earth. You're, you're not hiding the fact that you're low to the earth, right? Again, a very uh, opposite approach than American culture when going through hard times, struggle, loss, tragedy. Uh, they also uh, don't wear leather shoes during Shiva. And again, it sounds silly, but all this stuff has symbolism. They don't wear leather shoes. So if you got some J's on or whatever you're wearing today, I know Nikes are controversial now. Hey, if you don't want them, I'll take them. <laughs> I got Reeboks on today, don't hate on me. Uh, but anyways, right, you don't wear leather shoes. You don't wear leather shoes. And why don't you wear leather shoes? It's because it's a symbolic disregard of vanity and comfort in order to better concentrate on the deeper meaning of life, right? And so what they're saying, again, in this situation is, hey, man, you're going through something. Like, don't do these. Don't try to comfort yourself. Allow yourself for this short period of time to just sit and feel the discomfort in it. Again, very opposite of American culture. This is my favorite, grooming. There is no grooming laws during the whole process of Shiva. So after you tear that garment, like that's what you literally wear for the next seven days. You're not, you're not allowed to change your, I mean, you're allowed to, but you're not, you're not sitting Shiva if you do. You don't, you tear that clothes, the, the, that clothing, some of them there's a ribbon that they'll do, uh, but you wear the same clothes for that seven days. You don't change. You don't take a shower. You don't bathe. You know what I mean? It sounds nasty. It sounds gross. But what is it? Oh, that's all symbol. That's all symbolism of saying, hey, man, like I am going to feel the weight of this. And can we just acknowledge that loss and heartache and hard times, it's not a pretty thing. Right? And I think that's one of the things that's wrong with our culture. That's one of the things that's wrong with the way we as Americans like process grief and process hard times and process loss. We're expected to save face and not truly deal with it. Like, oh, you couldn't let anybody see you looking like that, feeling like that. Look, I'm not telling you. Don't say, hey, they told me at the fridge I don't have to take a bath for seven days. Hey, let me tell you something. Take a bath. Take it twice a day. You need to. We don't want to smell you. But hey, sometimes there's things that are more important, right? So again, this is a way of acknowledging that loss is ugly and uncomfortable. They don't have any marital relations during Shiva. That goes without saying. Music or entertainment. Mourners do not enjoy the sound of music or any other form of amusement or entertainment. Again, the exact opposite of American culture. What's the first thing that we do? We try, it's like we have this itch. You know, if you're addicted to social media or you're a dumb smartphone, I like to call them dumb smartphones because they're smart, but they're also dumb. Uh, but anyways, if you're addicted and you get that nervous switch, you can't stand in line at the store for five minutes. Oh, man, I'm just, you know what I mean? A little nervous twitch, right? Uh, in the same way, man, like, I think when we go through hard stuff, the first thing we want to do in this culture, we want to look for a distraction, right? We want to look for a distraction. So for the first seven days, 
And I'm not saying that there, there's no value in listening to a song, you know? Music is powerful, I'm a musician. There's songs that remind me of, of my brother, but again, during that seven days, they don't do it. Uh, Torah study, the study of the Torah is not permitted during Shiva for it is considered a source of profound delight as the Bible itself expresses it. The laws of God, God are righteous and rejoice the heart. However, the mourner is permitted to read the laws of mourning and study books on ethical behavior in other parts of the uh, Torah that are not of a non-joyous nature. What are they saying? No happy Bible verses allowed. If you want to read the Bible, read it. And let me tell you something. When it talks about, when you think about people who value the scriptures, like these people value, highly esteem the scriptures. But they say, hey man, don't go look for that happy verse. Don't go look for the, you know, so, I mean, I could throw so many of them at you. So, you know, sorrow may come, but joy comes in the morning. You know what I mean? I mean, all, no, man. Get into the Bible and read the sad stuff. Deal with the sad stuff. Sit in it. Again, no happy verses allowed. It's kind of fun. Shabbat, this is the Sabbath. All public displays of mourning are suspended. So, again, they're coming to the end of mourning. So, they're beginning to reintegrate their into their community. And finally, uh, Getting up from Shiva, Shiva ends on the seventh day after burial, immediately following the morning service. Those present, pre, those present extend condolences and the mourners rise from their wake of mourning to resume the normalcy of everyday life. So again, it seems very intense, it seems very extreme, but after seven days, those people start to rise, right? The first year, during the first year, uh, even as the mourner resumes his or her everyday routine, Certain morning practices, such as not purchasing or wearing new clothes, cutting one's hair, enjoying music and other forms of entertainment, and participating in joyous events, are continued for a period of 30 days. So again, it's all it's all dependent on what you're going through and how you've processed it. So again, for some of them, even their hair, they grow their hair out. You know, can you imagine, like for 30 days, I'm like, just like wild. You know what I mean? My beard's going crazy. Um, and so again, they they go through this. Um, and I want to close with that thought. I want to close with this idea. Why is it that some of us are stuck from stuff that we've gone through, stuff that we've done, stuff that we've experienced? Why, uh, are we, why do we still find ourselves in the same situation? Uh, these morning laws provide the outlet and validation for our grief, pain, struggles, hard time, or loss, and are so crucial to the healing process as well as a framework to graduate from one level of mourning to another. Now listen to this. Until our loss is integrated as a constructive and not destructive force in our life. That's the key. That's the whole point of it all. Is whatever that thing was for you, if it was a death, if it was a hard time, if it was a trauma, if it was something from your childhood or something from five years that you've never dealt with, what is the point of going through this process? It's so that thing can become constructive and not destructive in our lives. And there's a lot of people, man, there's a lot of people walking around, even people who say they believe in Jesus, that they've never really dealt with some of this stuff. And I, look, I was one of those people. I'm working through some of this stuff. And, and this stuff that I've never dealt with as a child and, and even five, ten years ago, like... What happens is it can become a destructive force of our lives, and we don't even realize why we're doing what we're doing, but it has to do with all that way back there. We tell people when we're in the prisons and when we're dealing with people that are homeless, there's always a reason why people do what they do. Nobody wakes up when they're five, six years old and says, you know what, Daddy? I think when I'm 22, I want to overdose on heroin. Mommy, when I turn 25, I want to do a life sentence. Nobody does that. There's always a reason behind that, right? 
And I want you to use your imagination and think about what is your biggest struggle in life? What is your biggest challenge? What is your biggest trauma? What's that thing that maybe you've tried to deal with it, but you haven't fully dealt with it? What is that loss that you experienced? What is that thing in your life that maybe happened five, ten years ago? Maybe it happened last week that you literally could have tore your clothes and cried out in agony. What is that thing? What is that thing? Have you allowed yourself to really feel the weight of whatever that thing was? Did you tear your clothes? That's the first question I have for you. And I want you to close your eyes now, and I just want us to really uh, think about this for a moment. Have you allowed yourself to really, truly feel the weight of it? Have you allowed yourself to feel the weight of it? Did you have an inner and outer circle that you can rely on? Maybe you didn't. Maybe you didn't. We want you to know here at the Fringe that we want to be that inner and outer circle for you. And no matter how sharp some of those edges are, no matter how difficult some of that stuff is, we want you to know that we will be your inner and outer circle. Have you had people serve you and good people present with you through your morning? If not, we want to be those people to you. Have you had people around you to push you to have real, raw, and honest conversation about it? People that weren't offended or put off by how ugly and uncomfortable things got to talk about. What kind of God have you believed in? One that is too far away to feel our pain? Are we just on a cosmic chessboard here for his entertainment? Was it him that allowed that? Or have you been reminded of raw pain, the raw suffering and the sorrow of our Savior that Jesus was called the man of sorrows who doesn't allow human suffering but chooses to enter the suffering of humanity that he offered to absorb all the pain, sorrow, and loss that this world could throw at him on the cross when he was crucified. What kind of God have you believed in this morning? What is that thing? What is that thing? What is that thing for you? What is that thing beneath the surface that you've never truly worked through and dealt with? The Lord wants to speak to you this morning and he wants you to let you, he wants to let you know that he sees you, he sees that thing, and he wants you to know that he is here for you. He wants to walk with you through that thing. He wants to help give you power and strength to not have that thing define the rest of your life. He knows that there's edges. God is not afraid to get close to you. He is not ashamed of you. He is not embarrassed of you. He sees the real you that nobody knows, and he loves you, and he accepts you, and he says, hey, man, come to me. Let me help you through this process of mourning. Let's, let's walk through it together. Even though the weight is heavy, I want you to know that I can hold the weight because I, hold, I held the weight of the, all the world's sin on my shoulders on Calvary, and if I can hold that weight, I can hold the weight of what you have gone through in your past. What is it that you find yourself stuck in? What is it that you can't get past? Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's somebody you lost. Maybe it's some trauma you've gone through. The Lord wants to help you this morning to get through that. And so I just want you with your eyes closed, everybody's head bowed, if that's you, if, if maybe there's some things that you haven't fully resolved, you haven't dealt with, it's okay, you're not alone, I'm there with you, if that's you, just as a sign between you and God, just raise your hand and say, God, I just admit, man, I'm just tired of this thing affecting me, I'm tired of not really working through this stuff, I really want to want to work through it, God, I don't want to run from it anymore, I don't want to suppress it anymore, I don't want to hide from it anymore, but I want to walk through it, and Jesus, would you help me to walk through 
through it. God, would you help me to walk through it? Because I know that it's when I walk through the darkness, when I allow the pain of that of that of that of that situation to fully be absorbed in who you are, that there is light on the other side. There's light on the other side. And I thank you, Jesus, that you have come to surround us. You've come to sit at the table of suffering with us. You've come to sit at the table of loss with us today. And I thank you, Lord, that you have come to free us from our deepest struggles.